Warner Solicitors provide advice on a range of legal matters to individuals, families and businesses. The leading legal directories regularly recognise Warners as offering some of the best legal advice in the region. This series of podcasts will give you an insight into some of the legal issues that may affect you and your family. Hi, I'm Paul Harvey and welcome to the Warner Solicitors series of podcasts. And I'm delighted to introduce Michael McNally from Warner's for this podcast. We'll be discussing agricultural law. Now, before we get into the topic, Michael, can you please describe your role at Warner's? Yes, I joined Warner's as a partner in 2012, and I specialise in agricultural, rural and country sports litigation. Uh, Now, that covers a wide variety of cases, but especially property disputes involving public and private rights of way, trespass, adverse possession, easements and so on. I also specialise in employment law, as well as commercial disputes and regulatory matters, and I also advise on disputes over the purchase and sale of horses. And my clients include not just farms, but estates, shoots, equestrian premises and regulatory bodies. How did you get into this line of work, Michael, and what experience do you have? Well, I left London uh, in the early 1990s and came down to work for a major law firm in the southeast, joining their rural and country sports team. And uh, we subsequently left to form our own firm of solicitors, continuing to specialise in rural and country sports litigation and subsequently expanding into agricultural disputes. Uh, And I was at that firm for 18 years uh, before I then joined Warners. You must have worked on lots of fascinating cases over the years, I imagine. Yes, I think I have. Um, (laughs) And I've had many cases in the High Court and Court of Appeal, And I still think that my most interesting case was one I did over 20 years ago for a Lincolnshire farmer in a case called Cross v Kirkby. And in that case, a hunt saboteur alleged that he'd been attacked by a farmer while they were both out on a day's fox hunting. He asserted that he'd been beaten around the head with a baseball bat and he sued in the High Court for hundreds of thousands of pounds compensation for alleged brain damage. In fact, what really happened is that the hunt saboteur had come armed with a baseball bat and he attacked the farmer with it. And during the altercation that followed, the saboteur broke his own baseball bat, enabling the farmer to pick up the other broken half and defend himself. And during the confrontation that followed, the farmer managed to strike out the hunt saboteur with his half of the broken bat, while he himself was under sustained attack from the saboteur. Now, despite the strength of our case, we lost in the High Court, and that was despite the fact that the judge decided that the farmer's version of events was true but the judge ruled that the farmer had gone over the top in defending himself. And we had to take the case up to the Court of Appeal, where the court ruled that the farmer had indeed just been defending himself and no more. Uh, The saboteur tried to take the case on up to the House of Lords, but that appeal was rejected. Um, And that case was, at the time, the leading case on self-defence and related defences in civil disputes. Fascinating. Is it still the leading case? Uh, There have been others, and there have been numerous cases involving self-defence in mm. criminal in the criminal courts but not so many in the civil courts which is why that one was quite unusual and got a lot of press coverage we we finished up in the national newspapers and on the bbc tv at the time so that was a very interesting and very rewarding one to do very good I, result i bet your claim to fame i, I think I've had other cases in the uh, in the Court of Appeal as well, so that's not the only one, but I, I still think that's the best one in many ways. Oh, I can imagine. Now, do you have any experience working on cases to do with water supplies, for instance? Uh, yes, I do. And um, farmers, of course, have had uh, issues with overcharging by water supply companies for a long time. 
But there have also been some cases where the wastewater disposal company has overcharged the farm as a result of misunderstanding how much wastewater was coming from the farm. And I acted for uh, such a farmer who runs an organic dairy farm in the southeast. And what happened in that case was that Southern Water had sold its non-domestic wastewater disposal business to Scottish Water Business Stream Limited. And what happened was that months later, uh, Business Stream started to send uh, the farmer invoices for wastewater disposal, which were way in excess, 20 times the amount of the invoices which he'd been receiving from Southern Water. And it seemed to be way in excess of the amount of wastewater which was actually going down the sewerage pipe out of the farm. And what happened was the sewerage company applied a percentage of 95%, meaning that they were assuming that 95% of the water supplied to the farm was subsequently being passed into the sewerage pipe. And that was why the farmer was, getting, was now getting invoices to 20 times what he was getting from Southern Water. And this dispute went on for some time without solicitors on either side being instructed. And eventually the sewerage company did instruct solicitors and issued county court proceedings for alleged debt. And at that point, the farmer came to me and we served the defence. And we also wrote to the uh, claimant solicitors explaining the situation and urging that it be looked at with somebody more senior um, who had farming experience. And eventually that did happen. They realised their mistake and they discontinued proceedings. But they still refused to pay the farmer's costs and we had to threaten to take them to court in order to finally get them to agree to pay the farmer's legal costs um, in full. So the case had a, had a happy ending for the farmer, but it highlighted what can happen when inexperienced staff are put in charge of a farming dispute because the sewerage company treated it as a debt claim. Somebody junior at the sewerage company handled it. It was then sent to their solicitors and again somebody junior at the claimant's solicitors handled it who didn't understand the farming issues involved. And it was mm. only when it was escalated to somebody more experienced that they realised the error that they had made in claiming this extortionate sum of money and subsequently suing over it. So mm. it's a lesson in ensuring that somebody who understands the farming issues is uh, put in charge of handling disputes like this. A very interesting scenario. Thank you for sharing that with us. Have you had any dealings with fly grazing? And what actually is f fly grazing, Michael? Well, fly grazing is when somebody dumps a horse or horses on somebody else's land to graze them without permission and unfortunately it is something which is often done by travellers. Mm. Unfortunately it has become all too common these days and one of the worst cases I dealt with was for a farmer who entered into a grazing agreement to allow an acquaintance to keep 55 horses on the, mem on the member's land. The problem in this case was that the licensee then without telling the farmer and without permission allowed a traveller to bring a hundred more horses onto the land and what's more, he then sold his 55 horses to the traveller. Result was the farmer had 150 travellers' horses on his land without permission. Now, fortunately, there is a good legal route out of this, which is the Control of Horses Act 2015, which enables a farmer to serve a notice requiring the horses to be removed, failing which the farmer can take ownership um, and possession of the horse and dispose of them, including putting the horses down. The problem in this case was that um, the farmer feared a confrontation with the traveller and secondly, the farmer was running a separate equestrian business and he was concerned about the PR if he was seen to be putting down 150 otherwise healthy horses. 
So it was a very difficult situation for the farmer. Fortunately, a settlement was negotiated with the traveller and, and eventually the traveller did remove his horses from the field. After receiving a certain amount of compensation, maybe? He only received a small amount of money to do so, fortunately. So luckily, it was not in, on this particular occasion, it was not expensive for the farmer, mm. I'm glad to say. I can imagine this scenario is something that's becoming fairly commonplace in certain areas now. It is, and that reminds me of another case for a North Kent farmer. And again, this started with a perfectly legitimate agreement. It was a tenancy to a woman back in 2009 by which she could keep her horse in a farm field. But then what happened is the tenant took her horse off and allowed friends of hers to move their horse in. Now, these friends turned out to be violent travellers involved in criminal fly-tipping. And so not only were the travellers using uh, the field for their horse, they were using it for illegal fly-tipping. So in that case, the farmer terminated the tenancy for fundamental breach of contract, although the tenant wasn't pursued for um, any compensation because she had no money. What we then did was to serve a Control of Horses Act notice on the land, uh, requiring the travellers to remove the horse. They didn't do so, so the horse was seized and put down. And fortunately, at that point, the police and local authority who knew the travellers became involved and helped to, helped to keep the travellers under control and to prevent further fly-tipping in that case. Worrying circumstances. Yes. Um, have you had any dealings with sheep worrying? That, again, is another problem which is becoming increasingly prevalent um, and it's become even worse since the um, pandemic and more and more people having dogs. And one highly publicised case was for an East Sussex farmer who suffered the death of 18 of his sheep uh, as a result of an attack by dogs uh, belonging to a very wealthy banker who lived in a nearby castle. Um, now, in that case, a prosecution was brought and the banker was convicted. But the problem with that case was that the criminal court awarded under £2,000 compensation to the farmer. Now, the difficulty with this case was that uh, the flock were an elite flock kept for breeding and they were actually worth nearly £10,000. And the difficulty is here is that the Crown Prosecution Service, which of course is very heavily underfunded and under pressure, mm. didn't have the necessary expert evidence to hand and didn't even ask the farmer to give evidence uh, in the criminal court as to what the sheep were really worth. And as a result, the trial judge didn't understand how valuable the sheep were, didn't have any evidence as to how valuable the sheep were and so assessed their value on a low basis. Now, an alternative for the farmer would have been to subsequently bring a civil claim in the county court under Section 3 of the Annals Act 1971, which makes a dog owner strictly liable when it kills livestock. Now, had he done that, there would have been no problem in obtaining a damages award of nearly £10,000. But, of course, he would have had to spend money on lawyers to bring a civil claim. Mm. And because the claim was actually worth just under £10,000, strictly speaking, that falls within the small claims court limit of £10,000. And so the starting point is both sides have to pay their own legal costs. So, although the judge would have had a discretion to award him legal costs, he probably wouldn't have done so. And so the result was bringing a civil claim would have left the farmer significantly out of pocket. So a very unsatisfactory result, I'm afraid, for the farmer in that case. It sounds it. And, you know, what's a little bit surprising with this case is that you describe this banker who lived, who lived in, this, in the castle. You'd have thought that he would have felt incredibly guilty and sorry about the situation and would, and would have made good for the farmer. 
Yes, you would have hoped that, wouldn't you? But apparently yeah. not. Apparently all not. Right. Takes all sorts. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Have you had any dealings with private rights of way disputes? I'm sure you Ye- have. Yes, I have. <laughs> and uh, and again, this is a very very common problem um, which arises. And we acted for one farmer who owned farmland surrounding an old dairy site. This had been owned by a dairy company, but had been sold off. And most of the land had been converted into a light industrial unit containing numerous businesses. But the farmer um, owned the, um, the surrounding land. And it transpired that there was a strip of land between the public road and the access track to the industrial unit. And that strip of land didn't belong to the industrial unit. It turned out that it belonged to the farmer. And it seemed likely this was a result of an error in the past when the titles were split. Uh, And one would have expected that the owner of the industrial unit would have been granted a right of way Mm. over the farmer's land. But he wasn't. And so the farmer was in a position to demand money for access over the strip of land. Um, Unfortunately, the illegal position wasn't straightforward because, as is often the case here, the owner of the industrial unit claimed, through the passage of time, he had acquired an easement by way of prescription or necessity to obtain access over the land. So he disputed the case and instructed solicitors. Now, I'm glad to say that this was uh, satisfactorily resolved when the um, owner of the industrial unit backed down and agreed to pay the farmer Uh, for the grant of an express right-of-way over the farmer's land and agreed to pay his legal costs. But rights-of-way disputes like this, particularly over easements, are um, extremely common and often very difficult and expensive to resolve because they're complicated. So have you any experience with contract disputes with seed and other suppliers? Yes, uh, I have, and we acted for uh, a farmer who had bought some lucerne seed at the end of 2018 and he drilled it but uh, the following spring the crop was extremely poor and investigations revealed that the seeds had not been correctly treated um, with a bacterium which would have stimulated nodule development during growth and the purpose of the nodules was to fix nitrogen into the soil Um, and the supplier had bought it from another supplier who'd bought it from somebody else and eventually was traced back to a French producer it actually wasn't disputed that the seed was defective. Everyone accepted that uh, the seed had not been correctly uh, treated and was defective. So there was a good claim. The problem is, was the value of the, um, the farmer's losses in this case because it had been his intention to sell the lucerne on to a producer of pellets for cows and horses at a substantial profit. His losses basically, as a result of not being able to do that, were over £200,000. All he could do was pull the lucerne out of the ground and because the defective seed contained an inhibitor to germination, all he could do was grow organic grass for the next couple of years Hmm. Um, and that's what gave rise to the substantial loss. So it was obviously the supplier of the seed from whom the farmer bought it, um, who was primarily liable under the contract. Um, But if the case had to proceed, what would have happened is that the um, seed supplier would have to have brought third-party proceedings against his supplier and so on, and third-party proceedings continuing to be brought all the way up to and including the French producer. So it would have been complicated litigation, and no doubt the defendant would have disputed that they knew what the um, Lucerne was going to be used for and that actually raises an interesting legal point about the extent of someone's losses because in contract law an innocent party can always claim losses which flow naturally from the breach of contract but if the losses are much greater than that 
then the innocent party has to prove to the court that the party in breach knew what the farmer was going to do with the seed or whatever it was he was buying and should therefore have known how much profit he would make and consequently as a consequence of the seed being defective. So that's why the claim in this case was a very high claim. Now fortunately in this case none of these legal complexities had to be gone through because the parties all met and the potential defendants all agreed to pay up and so the, the case was settled. But uh, it does illustrate that um, these cases can be extremely complicated and indeed had, that, had the case had to go to court it would certainly be an extremely expensive and complicated uh, and time-consuming case. Fortunately, mm. uh, as I say, that was avoided in this case and the farmer got a, got a good result out of it. Now in these times of climate change, I'm sure you've got experience with flooding cases. Yes, I do. And as you rightly say, flooding cases are becoming more and more common. In one case, we acted for a farmer who had a fruit packing house and grain storage facility at the end of a private driveway which led off the public road. And over the years, um, a number of houses had been built at each side of the track as the land had been sold off for development. And maintenance of that track was in the hands of uh, three trustees and the householders and one of those trustees was the farmer in question which required as one would expect the driveway had to be kept tarmac and in good condition but one of the householders complained that her property was being repeatedly flooded because the trustees and consequently the farmer who was one of the trustees had been guilty of failing to properly maintain the driveway and we got a letter of claim from their solicitors alleging all this and threatening litigation and an injunction application now, when we investigated this, we found that the real cause of the flooding was that the roots of one of the householder's hedges had been blocking up a drainage gully. And secondly, she had been allowing rubbish to accumulate on her land, blocking the drainage system. And thirdly, over the years, the other householders nearby had resurfaced their driveways and put in curbs, which had directed further water down the householder's driveway. So... The farmer said, well, actually, he had been keeping all his drains clear and keeping the road in good condition. So we responded in detail with this evidence to the um, householder's solicitors, and eventually they abandoned the claim. So a good result, although, you know, it cost money for the farmer to send the response to the letter of claim. And uh, so although a good result was, um, was obtained and, and litigation avoided, it, it certainly wasn't a, a free result for the farmer. Michael, thank you. Clearly, you've got a lot of in-depth experience with agricultural cases, as you've covered here. If people want more information about situations that they're concerned with on the agricultural side, how can they get in touch with you? Well, I'm a partner at Warner's, and so if, if a farmer has a query, they should first contact the NFU's Call First line. The reason for doing that, if they are an NFU member, is that they will get uh, initial free advice from the um, NFU's helpline team, who are very good. Um, and if the um, legal matter has to be referred on to me, then there's a good chance that the um, NFU will chip into the farmer's legal costs through the legal assistance scheme. And so there is real financial benefit in, in involving the NFU initially before the, um, before the uh, case is referred on to me. And is that the process that you'd like people to go through? Absolutely, yes. Um, and so I always, if, if anybody contacts me directly, I always say contact NFU, call first um, initially, 
and um, if they can't resolve it, it'll be referred on to me. They'll qualify for free helpline advice from me, and then they can make a decision as to whether or not they do want to pursue the claim further, armed with um, some hopefully useful advice, and also armed with a promise from the NFU to contribute towards their legal costs. And it may also be the case that they have legal expenses insurance. Again, that's something which the um, NFU group secretaries can help with. Michael, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks very much, Paul. I've been talking to Michael McNally from Warner's Solicitors about agricultural cases. Michael is a partner with Warner's Solicitors and does specialise in agriculture. Thank you for listening to this Warner Solicitors podcast. To find out more about our expert legal teams and the advice and services they deliver for both individuals and businesses, please go to warners-solicitors.co.uk. Okay.